in navigating the betrayal recovery process from your spouse's sexual addiction or infidelity, do you repeatedly ask yourself and God, why is this taking so long? Hi, I'm Kim Pullen, founder of Hope for Spouses, and welcome to this episode of Lunchtime Live. For those of you who are new to our ministry, I started Hope for Spouses shortly after my husband and I were reconciled from a four-year separation due to his adultery. And during those four years while we were separated, I really just tried to focus on my own healing. Uh, sometimes I did a good job, sometimes I didn't. And, uh, but I, I tried very hard to get out of God's way and let God work on my husband and work on me separately. And God, of course, stepped into the plate and because my husband was willing and eventually eager to change, uh, God did do a miracle in our marriage. And we've been back together for five years now. And it's amazing. <laughs> we have such a different marriage. Uh, there is intimacy like we never imagined before, uh, and I'm talking about emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy, on a level that we never could have imagined. And we both really give it the credit to God because we've put him at the center of our relationship, where he should be. So I want to ask you, now, how many times have you lived through this scenario? So your sexually addicted or unfaithful spouse is suddenly nice to you, even kind, and their change seems genuine. They say they're sorry for hurting you. They do something loving or considerate, like pay a bill or fix your car. You get your hopes up or repenting and that they're really changing. And then suddenly out of the blue and for no apparent reason, it all comes crashing down and they revert back to their old abusive pattern of coldness, gaslighting, manipulation, raging, deflection, blame shifting. Now this, of course, is followed by a truce stage or truce mode where you feel like oftentimes you can cut the tension in the house with a knife or on the phone or wherever. And if you do talk to each other, it's just like about the bills or the kids, but that's it. And then gradually, this leads into a time of calm, a kind of neutral area where everyone is civil uh, and to the outside world, everything looks fine. And then they do something nice again and the whole cycle starts over again. Now this scenario or cycle can occur over a period of days, weeks, or even months. And each time it cycles around to abuse, <laughs> What tends to happen is we get these frenzied thoughts that consume us. Why am I doing this? I feel like such an idiot. Don't they understand what they are doing to me or to our kids? You know, is this never going to end? When will they really change? Why is it taking so long? Why do I have such a hard time setting boundaries or keeping boundaries? So all of these questions come to mind and they just run through our head every time. And we get sick and tired of being on this insanity loop, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Now, why, why do we get disappointed? Why do we feel like maybe sometimes we have unreasonable expectations, like, like what should our expectations be? Now, some of the reasons why we end up getting disappointed are we don't really have or never had unified expectations 
when we got married. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16 talks about not being yoked together with unbelievers. Like what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What, uh, what is there uh, between a believer and a non-believer? And, and Paul was basically saying that, that when we come together into a marriage and we're not unified on, on our basic principles, what we think, what we believe, what we're committing to, it puts us on a, a very uneven ground. And, and if we were coming into the marriage without having those expectations, what ends up happening is we have a, a, a standard that will change because we didn't agree to it before we got married. In John 1, 1, it says that God is the word. And then in Malachi 3, 6, it says that God is unchanging. Therefore, God's word is unchanging. So God's word can be an unchanging standard. But if we came into the marriage without agreeing that the scriptures had to be the standard for our marriage, it wasn't my opinion, it wasn't your opinion, it's what does the Bible say? If we've, if we've gotten to that point, then we, there may be disappointment in our marriage because we, we came in with unreasonable expectations or unagreed upon expectations. And so we can feel really disappointed that our spouse isn't doing what we want them to do or you're not doing what they want you to do. And so there becomes an inequality and an inequity in the relationship. And so we can also have been really naive when we got into our marriage. Proverbs 14, 15 says, A simple person believes anything, but a prudent person gives careful thought to their steps. So I don't know what your thoughts were or when, what you consider when you first got married, but did you consider yourself, maybe you didn't really think if you knew that your spouse had a porn addiction, but you thought, eh, you know, I don't, it's not going to be a big deal once we get married. It won't, like, were we really naive? Because now, oh my goodness, like porn is rampant. You know, infidelity is rampant. The statistics are crazy. Something like 63% or 65% of uh, men, married Christian men, watch porn on a regular basis. And 35% uh, have admitted to having an affair. So these statistics are very real. And if you're if you walked into your marriage without being aware of what these statistics are and how damaging porn could be in a marriage, you might have come in almost as that simple, naive person and, and really buying into the lies that the world tells us that, oh, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And we don't really realize how incredibly damaging those past things in their lives can be to our present marriage. Now also, one of the things that can, can lead to unreasonable expectations or this disappointment is we really only see the top 10% of what's going on in our spouse's life. In other words, you think of the iceberg model, okay? You have this big iceberg and you're only seeing like the top that's on the top of the water. There's all this other stuff down underneath. And if our spouse is addicted to porn or they are doing things that they shouldn't be doing, sometimes they get really good at hiding it and we only see the top percent of what's going on. Sometimes we'll see a, a, a text or an email or what they're watching on their phone and that gives us a little bit more. But we're really only seeing the top, if they're 
being secretive or hiding, there's all this other stuff underneath. So sometimes when we when we get disappointed um, is because we're really only seeing that little bit. And, and we think, well, it's not that bad. Okay, it's only that little bit, so it can't be that bad. And then we expect something quick to fix it, you know, this, this magic bullet. And, and it's because we really don't understand how deep and how intricate and how complex sexual sin is and how it devastates everybody that it touches. You know, it says in Proverbs 5 through 7, it talks about the temptress and that, and that she brings death to the spouse. And if you are yoked to your spouse, then, and this, you know, your husband's jumping into this deep pool with this, this sin, guess who's going to end up getting dragged down into it? You, because you're tied to them. And so sometimes we don't realize that that sin, how devastating it could be to everybody that it touches. Also, our culture in the West, we expect everything done yesterday. Like we want it done. We want to take a pill and feel better. We want to go to a counselor and they fix all of our problems. You know, oh, we only have to go like a couple of times and everything's all better. You know, we just feel like if they just apologize, if they just said, I'm not going to do it anymore, it'll fix everything. And we don't realize that because we don't understand how deep this stuff goes, how much it changes a person, like physiologically changes a person, that it takes a lot longer than we can possibly understand to really change it. Uh, I mean, I'm, I was three months into my hand of my husband's separation. I was like, what's taking so long? Why, why hasn't he repented? Why hasn't he changed? Doesn't he realize what he's doing? This was three months in. I had three years, nine months left to go before we were reconciled. And we just don't realize that. But uh, I read a gentleman by the name of Patrick Carnes. He's a doctor. And he's been doing sexual addiction research and counseling for something like 30 years. And he's written several books. And one of the books he wrote is called Don't Call It Love. It's a very challenging book. And in it, he brings forth 25 years of research. And he basically comes to the conclusion that it takes the average addict three to five years to get healthy. Think about that. Three to five years for an addict to get healthy. In other words, that they are really trustworthy. So if it's taking a while, uh, maybe your spouse hasn't even started recovery. Maybe they're still in, I'm, I don't think it's wrong and I'm going to keep doing this. They haven't even hit that three-year mark yet, the beginning of the three-year mark. And of course, all that trauma affects the addicted partner. And so, yeah, it's going to take you a long time to recover as well. Now, one of the other things that can also cause us to be disappointed with the, just how long things are taking is because we misunderstand Scripture. If you're a Christian and you're watching this, sometimes we, we can read the Scriptures, but we really don't know what repentance looks like, like what is right in front of us. You know, we don't, we don't have a contextual understanding about marriage and purity and righteousness before God. And, you know, inside or outside the marriage, God has a standard that he expects everybody to hold to. And just because we get married doesn't mean that standard goes out the window. And so we may not have a healthy understanding of that. 
and that way may be delaying the process of why things are just continuing to go on and on, why we may be allowing these things to continue in the marriage without setting healthy boundaries. So there's another, th one more thing that may cause us to have unreasonable or unhealthy expectations, which lead us to that disappointment. And that may be because we don't under really understand how people change and what the process looks like. There's a really good book by Cloud and Townsend. Those are the guys that wrote the Boundaries books. And it's called How People Grow. And I really encourage you to pick that up. And if you're stuck, you're like, what is taking so long? You know, how, how does this process work? Like, how, how do people change? How do I change? And they really go through a, a, you know, a process of showing how people really change and grow. There's other books about how recovery addicts change and grow, but specifically how all people change and grow. Great book. All right, so what are the factors that affect recovery? You know, what, what, what contributes to the length of time that it would take for a recovery process to start and move healthily through? Now, before I dive into that, I want to offer a disclaimer here. I am not a licensed counselor or a psychologist. I'm a life coach, all right? So from my own research, my studying, you know, hundreds of conversations I've had with betrayed partners, these are the factors that I see that affect recovery. And I encourage you, don't just take these on facts. Study it out yourself. Find your own facts about this, okay? Now, before I dive in and look at this, I want to do a really simplified version of what does recovery even look like. We talk about the effects, but what does recovery look like? So for an addict, simplified version, recovery means admitting to the addiction and then striving to change those unhealthy patterns. Like there is a systematic way that they're going about changing those unhealthy patterns. Now for the betrayed spouse, recovery is admitting there's a problem. You know, we've been traumatized because of it, you know, there's something, there's something des desperately and, and um, decimating our marriage. And because of it, we've been traumatized and maybe we've sinned in response to it. Either we, we have done things we shouldn't do or we haven't done things that we should do. And we ourselves need to change. We need to change our actions. We need to change how we think. Uh, and then as we follow through that, we need help. We can't do it on our own. We need other people who, who have successfully navigated this. And so we set out on a path toward healing. That's what recovery really, really looks like. So now what are the factors that impact that? What are the factors that make it go fast or slow or seem to take an eternity? So one of those, a huge one, is childhood trauma. And... And when you combine our spouse's trauma with our trauma, <laughs> you have huge baggage that a lot of people bring into their marriage. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize or they don't recognize that they have trauma because they've gotten so used. To, it's like this big backpack that you just get used to carrying all the time and you don't even realize that you're carrying it and you walk into it with your marriage. Sometimes people have been traumatized and they've forgotten it. But they're still living with that trauma. It's still, it's like they're viewing their adult life through the lens of that trauma as, ch as children. And they don't realize that the world is blue and they're seeing it as red. And so they don't even recognize it. And so what happens when we're as children is that children, because of the, their brain or not, is not fully developed. They're incapable of processing 
how to deal with neglect or abuse or some kind of family dis dysfunction. And so they find a way to cope. They find a method for coping to fill that pain, to fill that void. Now, God designed childhood to be a time when, when we are filled with healthy things like love and affirmation and blessings and acceptance and boundaries and being heard, feeling being part of something called a family, of being nurtured. Uh, there's a really great book called The Seven Desires by Mark Laser. I'll put the link in the uh, description section so you can find that as well. And he talks about how all of us have these things in us from when we're children and, and their basic needs that we have. And when they don't get filled, um, there's some real, real issues that arise from that. So now instead, what can happen is there's trauma. And this trauma acts like it like punctures holes inside of us and it creates a kind of vacuum. And you know, if you've ever seen you know, movies about space and vacuums, what happens with a vacuum is everything gets sucked inside of that. And, and it basically the only way you can stop a vacuum is by you have to you know, seal it, you have to close it up. And so the, the, the trauma acts like a puncture in this vacuum of space inside of us. And what ends up happening is things get sucked into that hole and so it, can, it closes this space up, this void up inside of us, and it's anything that's close to that, anything that's in the vicinity gets sucked into that space. And if there's porn, guess what? That gets sucked into that space, and it acts as a coping mechanism to, to keep that area sealed up. And that's where addiction starts. Now, this, you know, these, this use of unhealthy things to fill those gaps um, often means that you know, without these healthy things, children's emotional development is stunted. They don't continue growing. I mean, again, our brains don't fully form until we're 25. So as children, we don't know. Our parents are supposed to be guiding us through how to cope with things that happen in life. And if our parents don't do it, if their parents are actually teaching us bad habits, they're modeling bad habits, then we get emotionally stunted. You know, that, that trauma emotionally stunts us. And so these children are robbed from the tools that they need to grow into healthy adults. And they continue growing physically and chronologically, but they're still children emotionally. And, and this trauma and the subsequent addiction that follows literally changes the development of the brain. And it affects us physiologically. There's a great book by, um, oh, what's his name? Um, Vander Koch is his last name. It's called The Body Keeps a Score. I'll put uh, um, a link in also in the description section here. So, but it literally changes us physiologically. Trauma does that to us. And so when we use these addictions to paint over the trauma, then we actually, our body retains this. Our body retains the trauma and it affects us physiologically through disease and heart issues and, and autoimmune issues. So, but the brain has changed and, and you know, be, because of all the new sciences that were, were, have been developed and the study of the brain, this is one of the reasons why some uh, in the field of um, sexual addiction have really validated it as an addiction because it has the same or worse effects on the brain as drug addictions like like heroin that it literally physiologically changes the brain 
So I'll give you a little mini mini lesson on how the brain how the brain works. So every time we uh, do an action of some kind or a response, we lay down a neural pathway in our brain, and it, it we create all these neural pathways. The brain's full of them, and so what happens is every time we lay down a neural pathway by choosing a wrong action or choosing uh, a negative response to something. So every time we get stressed and we turn, you know, our spouse turns to addiction, or every time our spouse uh, deflects on us and we don't say anything, or we um, yell back, we create a pattern. Okay, and if we keep doing that same pattern over and over and over again, it creates a super highway in our brain. And trying to not react that way trying to not yell back at our spouse when they yell at us or trying to speak when we feel too intimidated because they've intimidated and we don't speak and, and set healthy boundaries and we don't do what we know is right. So what's happened is we've hit that super high. We've done it so many times that we just continue to do it. And so in order to change that, we have to take a different turn and it would be like hacking through a jungle with a machete and creating a new pathway. That's how much, that's how challenging it is. That's how difficult it is. And so that's one of the reasons why these factors that affect it and, and that the longer we've been doing an addiction, the longer these patterns have been, the more we've laid, more neural pathways we lay down, the harder it's going to be to change those unhealthy habits, those unhealthy um, automatic defaults that we you know, wired into ourselves and our spouse is wired into them. So other factors that affect um, you know, the recovery process or why it takes so long is the shame and isolation that go along with any kind of sin. Satan just rides, you know, throws shame on it. And then, of course, when we feel shame, we want to isolate. We don't want anybody to know because we want to be accepted. We want to be loved. So we isolate. And an isolated mind is the perfect playground for Satan because he can tell you anything he wants and all we hear is him whispering in our head, telling us how bad we are. Our spouses, when they're caught up in their shame and their sin, how bad they are. Or they listen to other voices say, oh, it's not that bad. See, you can do this. You know. But deep down, they know their shame, and that's why they don't bring it into the light. Or their hearts get so hard that they do bring in the light, and they don't really care. And so all these factors are affected with it because of that shame. They went through that earlier stage of shame and isolation. Now... An addict also will blame their spouse so that they can stay out of the spotlight. Yeah, they feel that shame. They don't want to be dragging the spotlight, so they will push you in the spotlight. They will make it about you. Another factor that affects the recovery process is because then we're dragged in the light and we're feeling like, wait a minute, I'm not the problem. And it start this, it, it gets us off track from what the real issue is. And, and so that will delay the process because we don't recognize what they're doing. And so we fall into that trap, we fall into the argument, and we chase the rabbit instead of going, whoa, that's not really the problem. All right, another thing that can affect it is <laughs> the world tells us that, they tell, they tell our spouse, the world tells the spouse, and the world tells us that everybody looks at porn. You know, it's not that big of a deal. Um, you know, all of your, maybe your spouse's co-workers or friends or whatever, you know, they basically tell him, well, everybody looks at other women. You know, it's not a big deal. It's okay. And after you hear that enough times, you start 
believing it. Even though you don't feel right about it, you start believing it. And that delays the recovery process. Okay? Um, our spouse cannot recognize the seriousness of their problem, and we don't recognize the seriousness of the problem. Or we've never learned how to set boundaries. Um, we don't know what a healthy support system looks like. You know, our spouse doesn't know what a healthy support, they don't even know the resources that are out there. Um, they don't even know, recognize that what they're doing is unhealthy, and even if they did recognize it, they wouldn't know where to look, okay? And so you have all these unhealthy patterns, this ignorance that Satan tries to keep us in, and then on the spouse's side, on us side, we don't realize that a lot of other people are going through this. We don't realize that Satan is using all of our insecurities. He's using all those patterns. He's using all, all the fears to keep us from finding a healthy way to address this. And so these are some of the reasons that it takes so long for the recovery process even to get started. And then once you start the recovery process, it feels like you know, you're moving three steps forward, two steps back. And it's because you're having to learn healthy ways of doing things. You're having to recognize, no, this wasn't the way to do it. I need to go do different. And that's why we need a great community because we have other people who made the mistakes before us. And so we can learn from them so we don't have to make those mistakes over and over and over again before we learn our lessons. Okay, so what does recovery look like? How can we recognize it in our spouse? And how can we recognize it in ourselves, all right? So first thing is, humility <laughs> super important part okay if our spouses are always defensive or we're always defensive about why we have to go to the scriptures okay so james 4 6 says god opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble and then first peter 5 6 says humble yourselves therefore under god's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time See, as we are in recovery and as our spouse is in recovery, there is a notable difference in the defensiveness. It goes down. It may go down slowly, but it goes down. And when our spouse is in recovery, that they are making effort to stop blaming. They're making effort to stop gaslighting or deflecting. When we're in a healthy recovery process, there is a humility to get resources from other people, to listen to other people who have been through this. We don't make excuses for why we don't set boundaries. We don't make excuses for our spouse. We don't enable them. Okay, there's a humility about, maybe I haven't been doing this right. Um, maybe there's something that I could do to change the situation, to, um, to start moving forward in a healthy way so I get the help that I need, okay? All right, so what, are, what else does recovery look like? Well, sin has to be recognized. Uh, it has to be acknowledged. It has to be owned. Second Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 talks about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Now, worldly sorrow is we just got caught, and we're, we're sorry that we got caught. Uh, we're not going to talk about it anymore so that people don't nail us to the wall. But godly sorrow, it says, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings, brings death. He says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Okay? So, and when both of you are living in the light, that's another, another way that we can recognize that 
uh, the recovery process is happening. So John 3, 19 through 21 says, Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into it for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So when we are striving to live in the light, we are seeking out help from others who have successfully walked this path. You know, we have no qualms, you know, saying this is what I'm done, you know, helping other people to help us to figure out if the choices that we made really were healthy. Are they biblical? And so we bring ourselves into the light. We, you know, we put it right, we're right on the spotlight. Help me, help me, help me. That's how we can know, we can recognize what real recovery looks like. Now, it's, we don't do it perfectly. It's super important you understand that because we have all these bad habits of shame. And so, you know, we don't do it perfectly, but the goal is we are moving in the right direction. The three steps forward, two steps back, we're still making progress, okay? All right, we're also putting off our old self. What do I mean by that? Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. It says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So when we are putting on the new self, it means that we're replacing our bad thoughts, our bad behaviors, the unhealthy things that we were doing with godly behaviors, with healthy behaviors, with biblical behaviors. So we're literally, we're taking off those old things, those old habits, and we're replacing them with something new. You have to replace them with something healthy, something biblical, all right? Next, we are owning the impact that the sin has had on the people around us, okay? So our spouse is owning the impact of their sin, how they've hurt God. You know, 2 Samuel 12, you know, David, when confronted about his sin with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah, her husband, he said, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against the Lord. That was what he understood, that he, that he had hurt God, that his sin had hurt God. So when we are in the recovery process, when we, you can recognize somebody's doing that, when they are owning their sin and they are recognizing that they have hurt God because of it. Uh, they also recognize how much they've hurt their family. In Jeremiah 23.1, it talks about how the, the shepherds, the leaders, um, have gone, you know, followed their own path. And so what's happened is those people that are following him, because it's kind of like a shepherd, the, the father's supposed to be leading the family. And if, if the father goes astray, what happens to all the rest of the family? Everything else goes astray. So um, Jeremiah was admonishing the, the leaders because they were not taking care of the people and our spouses, they are, they are stewards, they are shepherds of their family. And if they are, if they are off doing their own thing, if they're off into sin, then it, it directly affects the children. We talked about how that abuse uh, traumatizes children. And then as far as us, we have to own to some of our choices and decisions. If, if we set our husband up as an idol in our life, if, if we are more concerned about what our spouse thinks about us or what our family thinks about us or what our church thinks about us than what God thinks about us, then that's our sin. And we have to own that. And we have to realize that we're hurting God by not choosing to be obedient to what the scriptures are teaching us. Okay. It also impacts the church. And uh, in 1 Corinthians 6.15, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. 
You know, Paul was admonishing the church because they were allowing sin to go on in the Corinthian church, and he admonished the leaders for that. And and it's because it, it, it directly impacts, you know, the church. Our, our spouse's sin, if it's not dealt with, it's like yeast that works through the whole thing. And if the church leaders are not addressing it, if they're not dealing with it, then standards get lowered all over the church. So it does affect the church. But it also affects our spouse. Their sin affects them. Our sin affects us. In Proverbs 6, 25 to 28, um, talking about the, <clears throat> the adulterous woman, it says, Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? That, that sexual sin has a direct impact on the person. I mean, we just talked about how it literally or physiologically changes the brain. Well, it ruins your life, too. It ruins your marriage. It ruins your, your children. It ruins your relationships with all the people in your life that God designed for you to be unified with, to have peace with, to have that shalom that the scriptures talk so much about. Okay, another way we can recognize that um, the uh, rec recovery process is ongoing is that our spouses and we ourselves are finding our own resources, that we're pursuing resources. First, First Timothy 4, 7 says to train yourself to be godly. So it's not our job to find resources for our spouse. It's not our job, spouse's job to find resources for us, that we are responsible for our own you know, our own godliness, for training ourselves to be godly, for our own salvation. We can't um, enable our spouse by, oh, I'm going to go find a program for you to attend. That's up to them. And if they are not doing that, they are not serious about the recovery. Now, we also need to be finding support so we can continue having people in our lives. So, well, they, they say, well, I don't know anybody who, who, who's gone through this. I don't know any, any group like that. And, and so I'm not, I'm not going to go looking for it. But one of the biggest things that they get from that support is other people who have been through this. And what we get when we put ourselves into a community of safe people is that other people who have been through this. And it's only when we really do connect with people that we show that we're really serious about changing. In 1 John uh, 1, 6-7, it says, If we claim to have fellowship with Him, God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. And so as we are in the recovery process, we are striving for repentance, we're striving to change, we recognize that we need other people who have gone through this so they can hold us accountable. And only when we are living that way, when we're constantly living in the light, when we're being accountable for our struggles and our sins, you know, and our spouse is doing the same thing, only when that happens can we really have fellowship with others and with Jesus, all right? So we also have to recognize that part of the recovery process is falling down and getting up. Three steps forward, two steps back. James 3.2 says that we all fall, we all stumble in many ways, but that, that it's about perseverance. It's, it's when we do fall down that we get back up, okay? We get back up again and again. In Romans 5, 5 through 8, it says that we also glory in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produce perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame. 
and see suffering, the struggle that we are trying to get out of this pit, we're wrestling with it, that produces perseverance. We keep going. That perseverance is developing our character. And through that, we develop hope that, yes, we can be different. We can be a godly example to our family, to our community, and have a relationship with God. All right? So another way is we see that our spouses and us are learning new habits. Uh, Romans 12.2 talks about being transformed in the renewing of our mind and, and that we develop those new habits through the scriptures. Um, it's a, you can kind of think of it like you're strengthening new muscles. We all hate starting a new workout routine, but um, we know that it's what's going to help us to get strong. We know it takes time to develop those muscles, and at first, we hurt. Developing those new muscles takes time to get where we're strengthened, but it's, it's such a wonderful thing when we can put our muscle up and we see the arm. <laughs> we see those biceps, you know. Um, but it takes time. And in 1 Timothy 4, 8, it says physical training is of some value, but godliness has value in all things, holding promise for both this life and the life to come. So when, when we are strengthening those new muscles, when we're working hard, when we're persevering, we're developing those new habits, that's the recovery process. We can see that as an example of that. You know, and also one of the ways that we can know is that we are working to rebuild and restore trust. So if, if our spouse has been unfaithful to us through pornography addiction or adultery, that when they are really in the recovery process, they are fighting and striving to restore trust. In Matthew uh, 5, 23-24, it basically says if your brother or sister has something against you, you know, a cause, a complaint, um, whether it's just or unjust between you, that, that they need to reconcile it. And, and so we need to be working really hard, you know, once that recovery process is started, is that our spouse is doing everything they can to reconcile, to build that trust, and they're going to do whatever it takes, whether they accept responsibility, you know, like, like uh, you know, I didn't realize I was hurting your feelings, but I'm sorry, I'm going to take responsibility for it. Like, that's how we can know. And, and we're, be, we're striving to become more like-minded. And when we become like-minded, we become more intimate. And so it's a process. But you can tell that they're doing that because that is something they're working on. They're working on rebuilding the trust. And they're trying. They're desperately trying to shepherd this, their family. They're trying to lead by example spiritually. Okay? So those are some of the things that you can, you can recognize what the recovery process actually looks like is those characteristics. Now... How do you create healthy and reasonable expectations? Well, first, we have to accept that our current pattern of thinking isn't working, okay? Romans 12, 2, all right? Be, to be transformed in the renewing of your mind, okay? To not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. He says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So if our, if our, this pattern of thinking we've had we recognize it's not working. We have to change it. We have to change our current pattern of thinking. And so we have to start creating healthy expectations. We have to choose to obey God and follow his standard, even if our spouse doesn't. Okay. John 21, 21 through 22. I love this. You know, Peter, it was the end of Jesus's ministry and he was kind of giving them their last, uh, his last instructions. And he was talking to Peter and he was reinstating Peter. And John walked by and, and, and Peter's like, well, Lord, what about him? 
And Jesus answered and he says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. You know, and, and there are other examples where basically God was saying, it doesn't really matter what other people are choosing to do. You need, you know what you need to do. You need to do it. Luke 13, one through five, James 1, 22 to 25. You know, God has given us his standard. And even if our spouse chooses not to obey God, we can and we should because our standard and our loyalty, our first and primary loyalty is not to our spouse, it's to God. Okay, so we also need to understand that real, what real repentance looks like. And we looked at that 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. Go back through that on your own. And we need to focus on repentance in our own life, in our own relationship with God and others. And only then can we really learn how, uh, when, we, when we were able to recognize repentance scripturally, can we, and in ourselves, can we recognize it in our spouse? We can know what that looks like. Um, and then we also learn how to set healthy boundaries to create a self-environment so that we can heal. Um, you know, Jesus set boundaries on who he was going to entrust himself with in John 2, 23 to 24. And in Proverbs 4, 23, it says, above all else, guard your heart because everything else flows from that. <clears throat> we need to create a safe, supportive community to lean on regularly. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 26 talks about how the body can be that safe, supportive community. We also need to um, recognize that only when we, our thinking has been transformed can we see what God's will, uh, God's will for our life will be. So like when we recognize, okay, this way that I've been thinking is not healthy, I need to change it, um, that's when those healthy patterns start uh, becoming our new norm. Um, also, we, you know, we grow more and more in our knowledge and depth of insight. It says in 2 Peter verses 5 through 8, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the way that we, you know, follow through with this healthy recovery process, that we can have these healthy expectations, is by accepting that our pattern hasn't been healthy, choosing to obey God, regardless of the choices our spouse makes, understanding what repentance really looks like ourselves so that we can recognize it in others, you know, learning how to set healthy boundaries, you know, creating that safe community around us, um, and then being determined to grow and grow and grow in our knowledge and our insight. When we have those uh, and have set those things moving forward in our life, then the recovery process will not feel so burdensome. It won't feel like this is taking forever because we're going to be active. We're not just going to be sitting back waiting for our spouse to do something. We are going to be actively pursuing our own recovery. All right. So if you've become exhausted, you know, and, and you've exhausted all your resources and you're tired of doing this thing called recovery by yourself. Uh, if you don't know how to practically apply the scriptures to your marriage and to your own healing, and if you're ready to be transformed in your mind so that real, real change can come for you and your family, then I want you to go ahead and schedule a call with me. Hopeforspouses.com slash call. Again, that's hopeforspouses.com slash call. We'll get on the phone. We'll talk about why it's been taking so long. 
for recovery to manifest itself in your own life, um, whether that's because of your spouse's choices, uh, because of your choices. And we'll look at the scriptures and we'll filter all that through the scriptures and we'll get you some healthy resources that you can use to start moving forward and, and see really where God, what God's plan is for your life. Okay? Well, that concludes this episode of the Hope for Spouses Lunchtime Live. Uh, we'll see you next week. I'm Kim Pullen. Take care.